Chad, where the lights, where are you? Where is Chad? All the better. Um, I think this is the Chad Stewart double-pronged throwdown, if you're familiar with the Bobby Flay throwdowns. The first piece of it happened yesterday evening. I met Chad at, uh, at the WGTS concert. He was talking about WGTS a moment ago. And uh, I'm not even sure why he exactly asked me uh, to take this pulpit. Uh, and when he's here, so I'm still working that piece out. And then there, the piece yesterday evening is Chad asked me, are you excited? And for whatever reasons in my life, in whatever maladaptive ways out of my growing up, excitement has never been a part of my life. It's always been suppressed. If you see my closet with it's just described, everything is in grays and blacks. My voice never raises much above this. And I can, so I suppress those highs of my life. But I didn't know how to answer Chad. And I, so I, I didn't want to say I wasn't excited. And I didn't want to say I was excited. So I just said that excitement's not in my vocabulary. <laughs> but maybe I'll find a way for a moment to be excited with you here in a few moments. And the second piece of this throwdown is that the text that Chad published in the bulletin and that Dr. Zinke read is not the text that I gave Chad. <laughs> there was nothing in this sermon about the bomb of Gilead. though it parallels, it comes close. But I think maybe I'll rise to that challenge and maybe I'll, midway through the sermon, find the place to enter just a little bit of excitement. And we'll still talk a bit about the bomb of Gilead. One other quick note is, in my pastoral experience, which has been very much volunteering and a bit here and a bit there. But I was schooled under an elder, head elder, who was the son of the head elder of the old Burnt Mills Church 60, 70, 80 years ago. ago. And that head elder from so long ago, at 12 noon every Sabbath, would get up from his seat in the front row, walk down the center aisle, and mumble not so quietly under his breath, no souls saved after 12 noon. It's going to be tough, but I'll do my very best and we'll try and make it as close to noon as possible. Nobody is ever going to mistake me for a fashion aficionado or an expert. It kind of fits in that same category as excitement. But yet the text that I did choose for today involved clothing and it involved fashion. We'll read it together in a moment and we'll read it for the first time in a moment. So I had to study up a little bit on fashion, and I, I studied where I think most people go these days to the internet. I wanted to find out a bit about two things, about designer clothing and about a hem of one's robe. And with the designer clothing, I just Googled that, designer clothing. And right there on the front in the little section that's somewhat new to Google now that has a definition, it says clothing that is clearly and boldly marked with the brand, with the logo or the emblem of the brand. And I never really thought myself of having designer clothes. 
but I do, at least by that definition. It's not these dockers over here. These dockers, I mean, they're, they're part of the gray and black of my life. And it's not this shirt, because it's branded on the inside as well. It's not clearly on there. That's a Kirkland shirt. And this is a docker's coat that's black that I never wear, but I do carry it. Sort of like Bob Dole used to carry a pen in his hand that didn't work. I carry the coat so people, and that's part of the reason this whole display is here. And I've got an overcoat that's black, but down here on the end are my two pieces of designer clothes because the logo is clearly displayed on the outside. These are the jeans and they're labeled Kirkland, clear for everybody to see. <laughs> and then my, my little briefcase bag is Eagle Creek. Those are really the two pieces of designer clothes that I have by the definition that was in Google. Then I switch over to the page from the page that says all to the page that, that has images. First the page that's titled images and then the one that is shopping. And I look through that and I'm amazed. Haven't really ever given it much attention. But on the shopping page, I find the Givenchy Woman's Bambi Tee for 1,190 for a t-shirt. I'm not even sure all the clothes over there total to a quarter of that. And then I find the Valentino color block, I'm not sure what that means, color block, Valentino color block leather varsity jacket in Burgundy for 3,750. And the Valentino applique silk gown for 32,000. And the Hermes purse for 14,000. And the Brioni tonal window pane suit, men's suit, for 6,700. And then something I've never heard of, the Hervey Ledger women's A-line bandage dress. I'm not even sure looking at the picture what a bandage dress is for $1,250. And then I begin to realize that I don't really have designer clothes. Maybe just by the definition I have designer clothes. But then I go back to the all page and I read a little bit more and then on that all page, I see that the really big name designers, the Armani, Chanel, Donna Karen, Calvin Klein, Versace, Ralph Lauren, Yves Saint Laurent, Karl Lagerfeld, Valentino, Prada, Tommy Hilfinger, and Oscar de la Renta on their really great creations, on what they're striving to be at the very top of their game. They're not putting a logo on the clothes they create. What they want to do is create a piece of clothing that is so markedly them by the cut of the fabric, by the stitching, by the sewing, by the color, by the shape, that everybody will recognize when that celebrity wears that garment down the red carpet at an event, an award ceremony that is televised to tens or maybe even hundreds of millions of people. They want everybody to recognize, or as many as possible, to recognize that garment for its style and for who created it, and that it doesn't have to have a logo on it. It just screams out Versace, or Lagerfeld, or Chanel, or Valentino. And that's kind of the point, I think, of the text that we're going to read. Instead of Jeremiah 8.20, Zechariah 8.20. Let's read that one. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come 
and the inhabitants of one city will go to another city and say, let's go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going, and many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem. In those days, 10 people, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. I googled next hem and robe and Bible. And I saw the picture on the images page many times of an older woman on her knees timidly touching the garment of a man who was turned away from her with a crowd around her. And it linked to the story of the woman with issue of blood, faintly touching the hem of Jesus' robe to be healed. But that's not what's being pictured here, I don't think. I don't think that's what Zechariah is trying to say. He's not talking about timidity and barely touching a robe. He's talking about people grasping a robe firmly, solidly. My wife and I both are crowd-averse. As uh, Chad mentioned, in the eight or nine years, whatever it is that we've been here worshiping in this church, we've been to this service once. Because there's way too many people, for me at least, maybe for Linda too. In fact, it's a good thing I'm up here and not out there because there's just way too many people out there, crowd-averse. I remember once when we first moved here to the Washington, D.C. area 30 years ago, Linda and I decided we would go see for the first time in our lives the fireworks on the Washington Mall. We left mid-afternoon and we took the metro because we heard that the cars, the driving was too crazy, too many cars trying to get in and out of the city. And it was fine going down on the metro and the mall was fine. <clears throat> People were spaced out enough. <clears throat> as we got towards, <clears throat> excuse me, as we got towards the fireworks, a little bit crowded, but we were sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, so we were spaced a little bit away from people, from those closest to us, and the fireworks consumed us and were gorgeous. And then came the drama after the fireworks when everybody made their way, seems like hundreds of thousands of people, to L'Enfant Plaza Metro Station. The crowds were immense, pressed in on every side. And what I so vividly remember is my wife taking her hand and reaching in and grabbing the top hem of my pants, my trousers, getting in there a bit of a belt and getting in there a bit of my back, and not letting go for another hour and 20 minutes till we got through that metro line, till we got in the metro station, down the elevator, on the platform, in the metro car, car jam-packed, got out of the metro station at Glenmont, and finally, my wife let go. And that is the picture in my mind that Zechariah is creating when he says, this is what the Almighty says, in those days, 10 people from all languages and all nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you. That was plan A for God, that his people would be so healthy, so happy, so holy, so wholesome, so connected with themselves and with each other and with God himself, that this would be so attractive to the world that was watching outside the borders of the Jewish nation, 
that the world would grab onto those Jews as they traveled outside their homeland and wait for them to come back because they wanted to find this God. Plan A for evangelism. But it didn't work that way, at least not during the period of the story that we're looking at. This is now well past the kings of Saul, David, and Solomon. The kingdoms had split the northern Israel kingdom and the southern Israel kingdom. After 200 years, the northern Israel kingdom had disappeared because they had wandered far from God. After about 300 years, the, so the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, where Jerusalem was, was beginning to disappear. People were living horrendously evil lives. They sought after only their self-interests and they would do whatever they needed to do to get what it is that they wanted. The land was filled with violence, corruption, manipulation, bribery, the stealing, the taking, the cheating, the lying. People, kings, and commoners had abandoned the temple. They had turned away from it. They had turned away from God. They had abandoned God. And they made their way into the various shrines that dotted the countryside in the high places and in the groves of trees. And in those shrines, they had built rituals that gave license to their favorite behaviors, whether it be drinking or drugging or sexing. That is the temple that they went to. So there was nobody from outside the world who saw any great advantage in coming to Jerusalem. There was no God pictured there that they wanted to see. The people of that land were not wearing the designer clothing of God. They were not wearing the holiness and the happiness and the healthiness and the prosperity and the connectedness. It wasn't there. And so God moves to plan B. And he begins to tell Jeremiah about that plan during the era of those last four kings of the southern kingdom. 25 years there. First he starts saying, if you don't change, on behalf of God, he says, you've got to change. And then he adds to the message a little bit, change, and if you don't change, something bad's going to happen. God's going to let down the protection. And the people don't change. And Jeremiah adds the words of the Lord gives him to his message. And he says, change, if you don't change, something's going to bad happen. And now Jeremiah just says it's going to happen. And go with it. Because it'll make, yourself, it'll make it worse for yourself if you try and resist. And the people don't change. And the Lord lets down his protection of the boundaries of Israel or of Judah and of Jerusalem and the armies of the east and the armies of Babylon make their way. And they begin to take the city. They come three times. They siege. They burn. They plunder. The armies are ruthless. And between those three trips that the Babylonians made to Jerusalem, they take back as exiles 150,000 Jews. Plan B is a version of a timeout. We know timeout as parents. When our kids are acting up or acting out, we put them off in the corner so they can rethink their behaviors away from the environment that was causing it. And God was doing something similar. But that was just one facet of Plan B. For him, it was still about saving the world as well. So if he couldn't get the world to come to Jerusalem, he'd take Jerusalem and the few remnant of faithful that were hidden among those so many other people 
he would take those few faithful to the world. And he did. And as they make that long march towards Babylon from Jerusalem, nearly 1,500 miles, skirting the great desert, it must have been the generals or some of the commanders that see in the company some very faithful people. They find Daniel, and they find Daniel's three friends, and by the time they get to Babylon, somebody must have informed someone in the king's palace that there are these three really great people, strong, bright, who can be in service of the king right here in the king's court. And those men wind up there. We know the stories well. How Daniel and his friends choose a special diet. How Daniel can interpret the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has and that he can't, that Nebuchadnezzar himself can't understand or even remember. And have how Nebuchadnezzar wants everybody to bow to the image that was shown in that dream of he himself standing as king of the world forever. And the Hebrews, those three Hebrews don't bow and they go in the fire furnace and they don't burn up and it seems as if the Lord and the angel is in there with them. And then there's Daniel who prayed against the king's orders and winds up in the lion's den but only to have a conversation and maybe to share dinner with the lions and not to be the lion's dinner, somehow at the end of the Lord. And the nation becomes aware that in their presence is three very special people wearing the very designer clothing of God. Now the nation can't make their way into the king's courts, but they know those guys in the king's courts are Jews. So what the nation does is they make their way to where they can find the Jews. And the Bible says that the Jews gather, maybe often on Sabbaths, maybe other times, they gather by the rivers of Babylon to sing the songs of Zion and tell the stories of their homeland. So the Babylonians make their way to the river. The story is in Psalms 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said to us, sing the songs of Zion. The world was coming to the Jews by the river, and the Jews were saying, we don't want to talk with you. Okay, this is the moment of the Chad Stewart throwdown. This is the moment of excitement. Maybe a little change up to the sermon earlier. I recently took this position with WGTS. It was a God thing. It was not something that I thought of. It was not something that I planned. And it was only something that my children and grandchildren kept saying, Dad, Grandpa, you got to do this. They pestered me for three months. They loved WGTS. And they said, Dad, Grandpa, you got to do this. And so in the end, I did it. I think it was mid-February I moved there. It was awkward. I, I was lost, as is many people in any kind of a new job. Didn't even really know how to use my computer after having a, a Mac for so many years, now a PC with Windows 10, which is, yes, have mercy. Thank you. <laughs> But I slowly began figuring it out. And what I first figured out is how many people, how many people are listening 
to those songs of Zion on that channel. Now, maybe it's not the kind of music we all like, but there's 650,000 people who regularly listen to that channel, to those songs of Zion and to those stories, and that they love it. It touches them. It changes their hearts. And then I begin, in the context of my job, and Chad let the cat out of the bag that I'm a fundraiser. Uh, I tried to start figuring out who's listening and who's giving. And I saw this huge breadth of, of demographic. One of the first people I became aware of, because it was in the Washington Post, was a homeless guy that lives two blocks in the park, two blocks away from the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue. Maybe you saw that article as well. He's got his radio on the bench beside him, and it's blasting out WGTS. He's got a signboard on the, on, behind his bench that has the bumper sticker, WGTS 91.9. And to everybody who call, comes by and walks by, and there's crowds at lunchtime and in the morning and the evening, all somehow associated with a government apparatus. He's calling out to listen. He says, WGTS. In the mornings, he's saying, this is Jerry and Blanca. Midday, he's saying, this is uh, Becky. Middays, in the afternoons, evenings, he's saying, this is Sam and Scott. Not I'm sure completely balanced, but a listener. And then in the context of my job is we be better figure out who listens and who gives. Become aware of some of the most influential and powerful people in this city who listen to that station. A CEO of a company who is one of the largest in the country, globally well-known, travels in, and I'm changing the details a little bit, but travels in from the Virginia, from their Virginia mansion in probably a chauffeured vehicle, listening to WGTS, arriving at their Foggy Bottom apartment so they can prepare last minute for their meeting at the White House, walking the last couple black block blocks past Lance, the homeless man in the park, playing WGTS, to go into their meeting in the White House as the cooks and the chefs and the sous chefs and the dishwashers and the platers and the wait staff in the kitchen are listening to WGTS as it plays over the air in the kitchen. As they're preparing food that was provided to them by a farmer who's just living outside Frederick in the Maryland suburbs, the farmer who listens as he's in the cab of his tractor while his wife is homeschooling our children in the house, listening again to WGTS. And there's 650,000 of those links of that web, laces in that web, all interlaced, listening to this one channel that is playing Songs of Zion and between the songs telling short stories of their heavenly kingdom. And I'm amazed. I'm not yet quite prepared to use the word excited, but I am, I am prepared to say amazed, <laughs> even awestruck, to know that there is that kind of community gathering at our place on the river, listening to the songs. Prayerfully, we will never do what the Jews in Babylon did and hang up our harps and say that this isn't the time to sing to you. I'm not sure why the people 
didn't want to sing to the Babylonians? Maybe it was shame. Maybe it was guilt. They remembered their lives back in Israel. All the things that I mentioned a moment. The riotous living. The way it had degraded their lives. The time out that God had given. They would look at their own hands and they would see woundedness. They would see scars. Maybe even a bit of blood. And they might have thought themselves unworthy. Just as some of us might think of ourselves as unworthy unworthy to speak, to sing, to preach from this pulpit. But if we think that, we forget that there was one who also came to have scarred and broken and bloodied hands. And it is that one who clasps our hands and hides our hands. And somehow out of that, our two hands together comes a story that is woven with grace, persuasiveness, that is compelling, that is a form of God's clothing itself. We are called to sing the songs by the side of the river and tell our stories. But not so for the Jews. In fact, if we read the next couple of verses of 130, Psalm 137, it says, How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth, which is exactly what they wanted. Remember, Lord, the day Jerusalem fell. Those Babylonians cried, <clears throat> Tear it down, tear it down to its foundations. O daughters of Babylon, you who are doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. So not only do they not sing for the Babylonians, but they curse them. They curse them to doom and destruction while God is trying to save those very same Babylonians. And maybe even in our history today, there are, there are moments when we are there too. We pray for the hastening of the Lord's coming, for the day of judgment, for the day of sifting, for the day of shaking at the very moment that God is so desperately seeking to save the last of those children who might make their way home to him, rather than us thinking about how can we join God in that mission. Jeremiah becomes aware of the thoughts and the sentiments of, uh, of the Hebrews there by the river, and so he writes them a letter. This is what he says. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles. Jeremiah 29, 29. And to the priests and the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The letter said, to all those I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, and there do not decrease. Also, 
Rather than cursing, I added that. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you about cursing the Babylonians. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have about cursing the Babylonians. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Jeremiah would write further that, yes, there would be a day, 70 years in fact, when the kingdom of Babylon would come to an end. There would be a time to come out of her, but it wasn't today. There would be a time that the Babylonians would have to pay the price for that which they did to Israel and to others, but it wasn't this day. This day they were to seek the peace and the prosperity of the people around them. And we too today live in a sorts of, of Babylon. Even the city, maybe some have described it that way. Certainly as we looked at earlier this morning, there is a great controversy between good and evil and God and Satan in this city. But our call for today is to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Our call for today is to gather by the rivers of Babylon and sing our songs of Zion and tell our stories. That is our call.